Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are continuing our conversation of the absurd. We've recently done a deep dive into the myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, and then his book, The Rebel, which was, I think, five-part series that we did right. on that work. Today, we are talking about an essay by philosopher Thomas Nagel titled The Absurd. Uh, this was a paper that he presented at a symposium by the American Philosophical Association on the meaning of life in 1971. If you've never heard of Thomas Nagel, uh, he's a pretty famous American philosopher, uh, most well known for like his worth in ethics and like philosophy of mind. I think the most common, most popular thing people might have heard of is his essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat, where he explores consciousness and what that looks like and, you know, experience and so forth. Um, I'd actually never heard of this essay by him until we started researching The Absurd uh, by Albert Camus, this philosophy, and Nagel has an essay there. So that's what we're talking about today. Um, anything to add? No, I'm excited. I, I've, I've heard a lot about Thomas Nagel, but honestly, I've, I've not actually not, up until this, I had read nothing. Even what it's like to be a bat, I had not read it. So We should do an episode on that too eventually, but we have to yeah. get out of our nihilism, absurd lens and switch to philosophy of mind, which might take some effort on both of our parts, but that's a whole other story. Well, but I mean, not too bad. Like we spent a lot of time, like when we started this channel doing the human nature stuff and we had mm -hmm. these debates between you and I regarding consciousness right. and what it is. So I think it'd actually be kind of cool, but anyway. Yep. Oh yeah, we'll do it for sure. Yep. Yeah. All right. So he begins this essay by discussing the various explanations of the absurd and his opinions for why they're inadequate. So just as one example, he lists many examples, but just as one, you know, he says, you know, many claim that our lives are absurd because nothing that we do will matter in a million years. Um, he says, quote, even if what we did now were going to matter in a million years, how could that keep our present concerns from being absurd? If they're mattering now is not enough to accomplish that, how would it help if they mattered a million years from now? And so forth. So in this example, he's saying, you know, timescale isn't really an argument for like why we should view our lives as, as absurd just because nothing we do now is going to have any ramifications a million years from now. That's not a good enough reason. Um, he basically concludes the first section by saying, quote, the standard arguments for absurdity appear, therefore, to fail as arguments. Yet I believe they attempt to express something that is difficult to state, but fundamentally correct. So his position throughout this entire essay is that life is absurd, but that none of the already existing arguments for why it's absurd are really sufficient. And of course, he sets out in this goal, in this paper, his goal is to establish an explanation for why life is absurd that is sufficient, I guess. Um, which clearly, if you're coming up with a new theory for something, you have to explain a little bit of at least why all the other theories that already exist aren't good enough. Um, and this is just a, I forget how long it is, 13 page essay or something. So this isn't a book, otherwise there'd be much more uh, depth here, which isn't necessary for our purposes or the purposes of him presenting this at a conference, right? So I had two things. A, 100% mm -hmm. agree with him that yes, um, it's very difficult to state like abs absurdism, even under like the prior understanding that we talked about the Camus and stuff is it's still difficult to state. That's why he had a hard time spitting it out in so many mm -hmm. pages that we talked about in things like the rebel and the myth uh, of Sisyphus. Um, B, if you were to, since Nagel's kind of challenging these prior notions of the absurd, if you were to try and like put them in like a bullet point, what are like, what would you say the specific points of, of prior understandings of the absurd like are there? What are like these, 
Well, I'm what saving is, that because he directly addresses Camus okay. later. So I'm going to Fair explain enough. Camus' position then. Okay. If people haven't seen our episode on the myth of Sisyphus, I'll sum it up really, really shortly once we get to that point. Um, yeah, so we'll do that in a second. Okay, so he states his claim in very simple terms to begin the next section. And I'm going to read this quote from him because I think it's important. Uh, quote, many people's lives are absurd, temporarily or permanently, for conventional reasons having to do with their particular ambitions, circumstances, and personal relations. If there is a philosophical sense of absurdity, however, it must arise from the perception of something universal, some respect in which pretension and reality inevitably clash for us all. This condition is supplied, I shall argue, by the collision between the seriousness with which we take our lives and the perpetual possibility of regarding everything about which we are serious as arbitrary or open to doubt. So that last sentence is really his position, right? He says, I shall argue that the collision between the seriousness with which we take our lives and the perpetual possibility of regarding everything about which we are serious as arbitrary. So basically he's arguing that we take everything in our lives serious, but we also can acknowledge the fact that none of it really matters, that it's actually not that serious, right? He continues uh, more details here, quote, we cannot live human lives without energy and attention, nor without making choices which show that we take some things more seriously than others. Yet we have always available a point of view outside the particular form of our lives from which the seriousness appears gratuitous. These two inescapable viewpoints collide in us. And that is what makes life absurd. It is absurd because we ignore the doubts that we know cannot be settled, continuing to live with nearly undiminished seriousness in spite of them. So first, we have to acknowledge that we as human beings are incapable of living as if things are not serious, right? We, whatever, the things that we do on a daily basis, you know, we get up in the morning, we make decisions, all kinds of decisions throughout our lives, right? Like, where do we work? What do we wear? You know, who do we get into relationships with? What kind of car do we drive? Like all of these things that we behave as if they're serious, but we also must acknowledge that all of the reasons, values, morals, et cetera, ethics that we hold on to, we can at least imagine an existence, a perspective where those things are not true, right? That our values, that morals, et cetera, are relative. But it's impossible to live as if those things aren't true. And you, you and I have debated this before, moral right. relativism, and et cetera. Right? It's impossible to live as an absolute nihilist. It's impossible to live as a moral relativist, even if you believe yeah, that even morals are relative. Even as an existentialist, like if we want to go a different route. Yeah. Like even, yeah, like, I mean, you can say these things, but living, like the practice, the action is almost an impossibility. So I would agree mm -hmm. with Nagel here for sure. Even if you believe that morals are relative, you have to be, live as if they are not, right? You must make decisions according oh, to some kind of moral framework. And so that's right. basically what he's saying. That's well, his, his yeah. argument, right, of why life is absurd is because we have to live as if it's serious with the knowledge that it is not, that everything that we hold to be true is relative. Um, and so the second point for Nagel is that we must admit that there is no way to escape this doubt. Like no matter how steadfast we are in our beliefs, we're always capable of entertaining a perspective in which our beliefs are not true, right? And so like with a religious example, like say you're like the most devout Christian that there ever was, you can at least assume the perspective, you can entertain it even if temporarily that Christianity is not true, right? So Nagel argues that it's impossible for us to live in a world without doubt 
at all, no matter how devout you might be in any of your beliefs, right? I just use religion because it's the most extreme, but anything, right? This is the kind of car that I want to drive. This is the shirt I want to, whatever it is, no matter how trivial or serious you think it might be, you can imagine a world where it isn't true, where it doesn't exist, where, the, you know, there are people that exist very obviously that don't believe in that thing and like so forth. You have something to say on that. I don't. No, 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 no. I mean, like I said, I think his 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 critiques and his deconstruction of like, well, I mean, in this case, understanding the absurd um, moral relativism. I mean, like I said, I brought up existentialism, even all of those mm-hmm. things. Like there's this idea where the conscious mind can grasp it, but we can't do anything about it. It's almost... I mean, it's, it's, it's shackling in a way, I guess. So it's actually kind of a crap out to me, but, but, but you're going to carry us through this, I'm assuming. So. Yeah. Because Nagel's conclusion actually is. It's, it's almost like one a person- of the conceptualizations of the absurd that I think isn't a crap out, right? He leaves us with a little bit of hope, which as we saw in Camus, at least we interpreted it as like no hope really. Um, but anyways, yeah, Nagel calls this position ahead, the yeah, step yeah. back, right? So He says, quote, we step back to find that the whole system of justification and criticism, which controls our choice and supports our claims to rationality, rests on responses and habits that we never question, that we should not know how to defend without circularity, and to which we shall continue to adhere even after they are called into question. So he says, if we ask enough questions, if we go far enough, right, in classes when I talk about this, it's like the three-year-old asking questions, right? Why? Why? Why does that? Why is that? Why? 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 If you ask enough whys for your beliefs, no matter how fundamental they are to you, you arrive at a point where they cannot be explained without referring back to themselves, right? Or referring to something else that also cannot be explained and so forth, right? That's inevitable for any of our beliefs. I mean, it makes me think of um, the fourth journey of uh, Gulliver's travels, like uh, journey to the travel of the Winhams, where like Gulliver is forced to like explain how a modern European society mm-hmm. works to this completely rational, almost like blank slate of a creature. And as like, again, it's like putting up the mirror. The more you have to explain to this, this, this creature that views things from a completely rational perspective, the more irrational you seem. No, the more absurd it example. seems. Yeah. Yeah. So for Nagel, the absurdness isn't that we're able to take this step back, right? To take this perspective. It's that regardless of our ability to take this perspective and what he says, quote, recognize what we do as arbitrary, unquote, that we still live our lives as if things matter. So we can both at the same time understand that nothing matters, but at the same time, we have no choice but to live our lives as if they do matter, right? So our absurdity lies, quote, not in the fact that such an external view can be taken of us, but in the fact that we ourselves can take it without ceasing to be the persons whose ultimate concerns are so coolly regarded, right? So interesting. This is a different framing of the absurd than like Camus had or others have. So this is Nagel's absurd. Life is absurd because we're capable of stepping back and recognizing that all of our beliefs are completely relative And really, if we ask enough questions enough, if we have enough, you know, if we have this doubt uh, that there's there's no truth within any of these belief systems that we hold, yet then we're forced to step back in essentially and behave as if our belief systems do actually mean something. We can't live a life where that is impossible. 
Uh, where so we what I was trying to, yeah, what I was trying to say earlier, um, I think like it reminds me a little bit of, and we use this one all the time because it's a classic, right? The allegory of the cave where the prisoner mm-hmm. ends up back in the cave, right? Like he gets out, sees reality, whatever. And yet in the, that specific case, it's not exactly the same, but does choose to be back in the cave in this, in this case, because like what else is there? That's actually a really good example because Nago would disagree with that. He talks at that like analogy because he says the important thing to understand during the step back, right? When we step back and doubt our, all of our belief structures, isn't that we're capable of stepping back and viewing reality as it actually is that what we step back and realize is there is no reality actually outside of ourselves, right? And that's then when we're forced to accept the fact that our belief structures have no truth behind them and just continue to function as if they do. So to use the cave example, it would be as if the people never got out of the cave, that they just turned around and like realized what was going on and then went back and just continued to function in the chains with the shadows. You know what I mean? Although even there, I guess there's a different reality. Well, and then, like I said, Plato goes a little further when he starts going into the copy of a copy of a copy stuff in later philosophies. So he developed it further as well. But like, no, that's perfect. That's perfect that Nagel would would view it differently, not even getting out of the cave, just seeing the puppeteers behind them. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I like that. He says one solution that people take, I guess it's not a solution. One approach people take to try to address this absurd is by trying to find meaning in something bigger than themselves, which is common. We hear this all the time, right? How do you approach existentialism? How do you approach the absurd? How do you pro- like you find meaning outside yourself? This is like the most common response, right? But for Nagel, this is not good enough. This is not sufficient to cause uh, to correct the issue. He says, quote, however, any such larger purpose can be put in doubt in the same way that the aims of an individual life can be. And for the same reasons, it is as legitimate to find ultimate justification there as to find it earlier among the details of an individual life. But this does not alter the fact that justifications come to an end when we are content to have them end, when we do not find it necessary to look any further. If we can step back from the purposes of individual life and doubt their point, we can step back also from the progress of human history or of science or the success of a society or the kingdom, power, and glory of God and put all these things into question in the same way. What seems to us to confirm meaning, justification, significance does so in virtue of the fact that we need no more reasons after a certain point. So he's basically saying we can doubt just as we can doubt the importance of our individual decisions. We can also doubt the legitimacy and the importance of something that exists that's bigger than us, that exists outside of us. Right. He uses what the human history, science, God, society and so forth. He basically says those things aren't void of doubt. We just stop questioning them when they make us feel good. Yep. Right? Essentially is kind of what he's yep. saying. Eventually there becomes a point where we don't want to ask questions anymore. So we just give up, not because they're true, but because it's good enough for us. Right. Well, for the individual. And that, this mm-hmm. is probably my favorite part as well, because this is where you get to see when, when other people begin to question this for other people, right? Why there is so much anger and diet. It's just, and hatred, I mean, for lack of a better term, when you start asking these questions of somebody's religious beliefs, or mm-hmm. in our case, when you start asking these questions of, of a certain person's nationalism and belief in their nation state or their society or something like that, they don't necessarily act as in like as dismissive as you like. They act out in anger because mm-hmm. it's their, their comfort level or the fact that it's so convenient for them to understand is so important to their perpetual existence. Um, 
that merely drawing that into critical inquiry is 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 grounds for lashing out in anger, right? Uh, it's it's. I mean, those are my favorite examples. I mean, mm-hmm. we've all had this question, and and, and anyone that's watching this channel knows uh, both Nick and myself's point of departure regarding things like nationalism or the great world religions or whatever, and we will never stop questioning those. But that's, I mean, that's why we get so much like ire directed at us, right? Because people have reached that point. And I love the way that Nagel has it. Like these are the things that, those things don't stop being absurd. They're wildly absurd. I'm sorry, but every major world religion is absurd. The idea of the nation state is absurd. These are absurd things, but people draw so much comfort of living within the absurd. And this is also, again, reminding me a little bit of the cave, right? But Although I think that we would have to live outside of a nation or outside of our religious beliefs or whatever, right. To live in the absurd, but that's a more, that's more of like Camus framing of the absurd, I think. Yeah. Right. But you bring up a good point that like people lash out so much. It's because to use Nagel's framework, you're making them confront the fact that their belief systems are not true, that they're, they can be doubted. Right. Because they've arrived at a point clearly where they have stopped questioning and they've just accepted the validity because it makes them feel good. Right. So they've they've stepped in or maybe they've never stepped back or whatever, but they're living life as if it's important. And you're pointing out to them that, you know, the absurdity of their existence, which very clearly is like an existential threat. Right. He then shifts his point uh, and his attention in the paper to Camus, which like, I don't think you can really write about the absurd without mentioning Camus. Um, he establishes his idea in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, which was in the 40s that he wrote. Uh, like we talked about earlier, we have an entire episode on The Myth of Sisyphus. So if you want more on that, check out that entire episode. But uh, I'll break it down really, really simply. Essentially, Camus argues that human beings inherently seek total understanding of the universe and meaning within human existence, but that the natural world as it exists, the universe is incapable of providing meaning for human existence, and it's impossible for humans to create meaning for themselves. Thus, human existence is absurd. And that's minor point where it differs with existentialism. The existentialists argue that it is the human being's job to create meaning for themselves. Camus' absurdism is that it's impossible for human beings to um, create meaning for themselves, right? So Nagel addresses Camus directly. He says, quote, Camus maintains in the myth of Sisyphus that the absurd arises because the world fails to meet our demands for meaning. This suggests that the world might satisfy those demands if it were different. But now we can see that this is not the case. There does not appear to be any conceivable world containing us about which unsettled doubts could not arise. Consequently, the absurdity of our situation derives not from a collision between our expectations and the world, but from a collision within ourselves. And I really, really like this because, you know, like he says eloquently, right? Camus' absurd is a result of this conflict between the individual human and the universe. But for Nagel, it's this internal conflict is why our lives are absurd because we are individually capable of questioning our own belief structures. We are, as a result of human consciousness, Nagel argues, capable of stepping back and questioning our own belief structures to such an extent that we cannot explain away that doubt. We have no choice but to live with it and no choice but to live as if our daily lives are important, even though we know that they are not because we're capable of taking that perspective. It has nothing to do with the universe. It has everything to do with 
you know, internally. Anyone can do that at any time. So there are three for Nagel potential ways to escape this predicament, which this predicament in this case so far is our absurdist existence, you know, living life as if things matter, even though they don't. The first he calls, uh, one way to escape what he calls, quote, the relevant self-consciousness is, quote, either never to attain it or to forget it, neither of which can be achieved by the will. So he says, basically, we can never achieve consciousness as an individual, or we can somehow give up our consciousness and, and that will, we will no longer possess the ability to step back and view our beliefs and have doubt, right? But he says it's not really possible. Uh, it cannot be achieved by the will, he says. So that one's out, right? We can't really do that, at least not intentionally. So this one did give me pause. I might not have thoughts on on, on what came prior regarding mm-hmm. this predicament, but this impossibility to solve the predicament through um, abolition of consciousness, while seemingly is an impossibility, I actually argue that it's not. And I think, and maybe I'm reaching here, so tell me if I am reaching, but I think other people reaching or other people trying to abolish their consciousness in this regard can be seen in like layers and layers of substance abuse and the rise and prominence thereof. Maybe, maybe not abolishing their self-consciousness, but altering it in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thoughts on that. Like, why would this be so appealing to people, especially when we think about I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not talking about spirit drugs here and stuff like DMT. I'm actually talking mm-hmm. about things like alcoholism, where you're dr- basically just trying to like almost literally wash it away. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I see that too. I don't know if those people ever reach your, I mean, they might become unconscious like in that sense, but they aren't able to live without consciousness. You know what I mean? They're not able to live like he uses, I didn't put it in here because we would have gone off on a tangent for another 30 minutes. Right. If we talked about his discussion of animal consciousness, because that's what he compares it to. Um, he says the animals don't possess this ability to step back and like so forth, which if you read, what is it like to be a bat? You get where he's coming from in even more detail, not you individually, but like the listener. So I don't think anyone that has gone down the path of, you know, alcoholism or heroin or whatever, any kind of substance abuse has ever got to a point where they can live a purely like instinctual impulsive existence, much like an animal would, you know what I mean? Like they might become unconscious, i.e. like blacked out and you're right. They might alter their consciousness, but I don't think they ever achieve an existence void of consciousness. You know what I mean? So I guess I should be clear. I I would argue they also don't achieve it, but do you think there's an attempt to because of the absurd? Do you think like this is, I guess what I would argue an effect thereof? Oh yeah. I realize like, I don't think it's probably whether or not they the reason for every single alcoholic, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's a, as I say, valid, I don't know if it's valid or not, because that's a value judgment, but I think it's a definite response to, you know, the absurdity of human existence for some people, for sure. Definitely. Okay. Next, he says, we could try to attain universal consciousness. Quote, if one succeeds, then one will not have to drag the superior awareness through a strenuous mundane life and absurdity will be diminished. However, he suggests that this can only be achieved through, quote, effort, willpower, asceticism, and so forth. It requires one take oneself seriously as an individual that one take considerable trouble to avoid being creaturely and absurd, end quote. So therefore, this is essentially impossible as well, because in order to try to achieve this level of consciousness and think here of like, because he actually uses, he uses oriental religions, right? This like Buddhism, Taoism, et cetera. These Does he religions. use the word oriental? I guess it was the 70s. He did, yeah. Oh, God. It's okay. 1971. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> so 
In order to do this, though, he argues, you actually have to try to do it, right? This has to be an act of the will. You don't just do this by like passivity. So he's saying, as a result, you have to take yourself very, very seriously in order to achieve this transcendental consciousness. And as a result, it's not possible for many people, right? He says it's impossible overall. He's kind of vague here. I say it's impossible for everyone. Perhaps, you know, the argument can be made that like the Buddhist monks or whatever, some of them has achieved this level of consciousness. That's up for debate, right? But at least, the very least, for most people, it's not possible to live a life in pursuit of this consciousness. Right? Not that I feel like um, adding a tangent here because I don't want this episode to go too long, but like the passive um, action on this, I, I, I don't know that it qualifies fully as like passive in engaging in this attempt um, at dealing with the absurd this way. But uh, if we are going um, Eastern in our philosophies, I think Taoism would have been a better area of study rather than Buddhism in this case. But that's just me. Oh, he doesn't that. say Buddhism. I went to Buddhism. He uh, just—he okay. literally just says Oriental religions, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's see, I think, I think Taoism makes it uh, – well, here, I would also agree with him in, in general that it is probably still an impossibility. However, if you were looking for a path, I think Taoism would be, would be a possibility for that more passive and less active version. Right. Then so. number three, he says, one potential escape from our absurdist predicament is suicide. However, he immediately caveats this, and this is where he takes a turn from – all of the other absurdist philosophers, at least the famous ones, and definitely from Camus, because Camus also concludes that suicide isn't a valuable or a valid opinion. But for Camus, it's not a valid opinion, a valid response to the absurd, because it violates the constants of the absurd in a real way. For Camus, it's really like a problem of logic. So for Camus, the absurdist uh, equation is, you know, the universe and its lack, its inability to provide meaning, human beings and their desire for meaning, and that results in the absurd. So for Camus, if you remove the human experience from the equation, you've basically like violated the logic of the absurdist equation, right? So mm -hmm. it's a problem for Camus in that regard. For Nagel, it's a problem because he asked the question, is absurdist existence even a predicament? So he himself takes a step back and is like, you know, all these philosophers that are talking about the absurd and how do we solve it? How do we approach it? You know, do we take a leap of faith by believing in religion uh, or rationality, yeah. et cetera, right? All these things that Camus talks about at length in his two books that touch on this, right? The myth of Sisyphus and the rebel. And Hegel takes the turn in the end of his essay that says, maybe this isn't even a predicament that needs to be solved where we need to find an escape, Right. Because he concludes, right, there is no escape anyways. You know, Camus' answer is that we must face the absurdist existence head on. We can't make meaning for ourselves. So the only thing that we can do is maintain a continuous confrontation to our absurd existence, right? We live on in spite of the absurdity. So Nagel says, he's talking about Camus here, quote, this seems romantic and slightly self-pitying. Our absurdity warrants neither that much distress, nor that much defiance. At risk of falling into romanticism by a different route, I would argue that absurdity is one of the most human things about us, a manifestation of our most advanced and interesting characteristics. It is possible only because we possess a certain kind of insight, the capacity to transcend ourselves in thought. Nagel's position is that we should appreciate our ability to experience the absurd 
and as a result, approach our lives with a sense of irony. We should appreciate this ability that we, he argues, uniquely as humans possess. He concludes with the following. He says, quote, if a sense of the absurd is a way of perceiving our true situation, even though the situation is not absurd until the perception arises, then what reason can we have to resent or escape it? Like the capacity for epistemological skepticism, it results from the ability to understand our human limitations. It need not be a matter for agony unless we make it so, nor need it evoke a defiant contempt of fate that allows us to feel brave or proud. Such dramatics, even if carried on in private, betray a failure to appreciate the cosmic unimportance of the situation. If there is no reason to believe that anything matters, then that does not matter either. And we can approach our absurd lives with irony instead of heroism or despair. What do you think? I hate Metallica, uh, but it has me thinking nothing else matters, right? Like that's <laughs> like that was the song, unfortunately, that was playing in my head as like <laughs> you were reading this last quote. So, I mean, I think that's it right there. I mean, no, I appreciate what he's saying. And in, in this idea that... And I actually do 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 like this. I can see why, and and our listeners might not be privy to this because we're not going to go deep into this. But I did go through some other notes you wrote just just out of curiosity as you were digging through this. And you mentioned like oh, it's connection to Sterner and things along those lines and nihilism. I could definitely see how there might be some perceived connection here. And I, I'd be super interested to see if you actually do pursue some research making these connections. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I was thinking about at this point in time that the absurdity. I mean, if we're really living in the absurd, then the absurd itself is irrelevant. And that in and of itself is absurd. And so why does it matter at all? Um, yeah, I mean, that's his argument, right? He says, like, yeah, I, if I get nothing it. matters, yeah. then the fact that we're living in absurdist existence doesn't matter. So it makes no sense to have all of this like existential angst. And what does he say? Something here that I like. Um, dramatics, right? Mm-hmm. It makes no, None of this makes sense because it also doesn't matter that we, the only choice we really have is to continue to live our lives as if they do matter because we can't function as human beings without doing that, but instead approach them with a sense of irony, right? You could like essentially, yes, my political belief is no more important or valid than anyone else's political belief, but I'm still going to live as if it is, right? To me, this is like almost the like pinnacle of enlightenment, even though it seems ridiculous, it is ironic, which is why Nagel uses that term intentionally, right? But that's really the only way to live. And the only reason, like I said, I would I would even push back on that a little bit is I would argue when we're talking about political ideology or even the specific actions of a day-to-day life, whatever that might be, waking up, making your coffee, going to work and so on and so forth. To me, some of that I do actually believe has reached the point and maybe it always has of like subconscious. It's not, mm-hmm. people aren't making these conscious decisions. And so then I guess it, it falls out of the observe and it becomes more routine. But I don't know that that I mean, it's kind of pedantic, so I don't know that we need to follow this tangent. I mean, so like if you are a staunch whatever, if you're a fascist or something along those lines, mm-hmm. that I, I don't even know that you're consciously a fascist at a certain point that I think maybe you're, that's just sort of subconscious. That so maybe ingrained, right? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I would argue that they're not even having these doubts or even wanting to doubt because it's not, you know what I'm saying? I, mm-hmm. I hate to be a jerk, but yes, you're wildly unenlightened. You are, you're, mm-hmm. yeah. So does that, yeah. Yeah, definitely not everyone. Right constantly takes that step back that Nagel talks about, right? I would definitely argue that a certain set of political ideologies are definitely more privy to being just unconscious routine. I don't know, man. Like I, 
I don't think if we go right or I think if we go any direction, anywhere on the political spectrum, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle or the right or the left or whatever. I think there's just as much chance that you haven't stepped back or you don't continuously step back and analyze your beliefs. I mean, I think that's universal. Well, we'll debate. How many socialists do you know that continuously are like, yeah, you're right. Like my beliefs aren't, there's no truth to my belief whatsoever. Like I understand that every political ideology is absurd, yet I still am going to function as if socialism matters. I think they would be much more willing to entertain the conversation um, than the lashing out we talked about earlier, the anger, the, uh, uh, well, maybe not. I guess if, you you know what, maybe not. Now I'm thinking as the history guy, I probably have to actually use some um, examples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's censorship in socialist countries as much as there is. Yeah, it's, yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. I got you. All right, that's it. Thomas Nagel and the Absurd. Let us know what you thought. If you want more on absurdism, check out our episode on the myth of Sisyphus and Albert Camus' The Rebel. We have a five-part series there. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app. That will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.